Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The singer and songwriter Naomi Rain examines her faith, identity, motherhood, and mental health in a new solo album, Journey, Acoustic Sessions. Later this hour, she'll take us through her recording and tell us about the Worship Music Collective she co-founded, Maverick City Music. We'll also share a laugh with local comedian Joe Kelly in our series, Speaking of Comedy. First, in our highly interconnected and interdependent lives, being self-reliant may seem remote especially when resources and space are limited. But Atlanta-based urban farmer Jamila Norman is teaching everyday families how to start a backyard farm, even while living in the city. The HBO Max series Homegrown follows her as she educates aspiring urban farmers through the do's, don'ts, and amazing possibilities of DIY home food gardens. Jamila Norman joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me, and it's a joy to be here. Thank you. Likewise to have you here. Please introduce us to Patchwork City Farms, the organization you founded, and focusing your talents on bringing farming to city communities. Yes, so Patchwork City Farms is a farm I started here in Southwest Atlanta in the neighborhood of the West End um, in 2010. I lived in the West End. I was raising my family here and I saw a need for fresh produce and just access to that. And I just decided to start a farm. 14 years later, Patchwork is now five minutes away (laughs) in Oakland City. And it's a property that I have had the pleasure and the good fortune of being able to purchase and I'm currently building out the permanent Patrick City Farms, and there's lots of amazing things to come for this site. I sell at local farmers markets. I do online sales where people can come and pick up at the farm, and I do some restaurant sales as well. And throughout its whole existence, Patrick City Farms has been growing food that is fresh, organically grown and healthy and just, you know, culturally relevant for the community Mm. here in Southwest Atlanta and the greater Atlanta area. How do you find neighbors and families who are interested in creating food gardens? Oh, it's not hard. You start it and they come (laughs) pretty much. Since I've started the journey of growing, I've definitely had so many people interested. The first iteration of Patchwork, we were at a middle school. We had the commercial growing side, we had, which was about a half acre. We had a quarter acre dedicated to a student garden. 
and then another quarter acre that was like a community garden. And so we were working with local community members, stewarding spaces on their own. We were growing ourselves. And then we were also working with the students at Brown Middle School with a after school garden program. And uh, yeah, the interest has continued to grow. I'm definitely part of just like a national movement of people just sort of going back to the land and recognizing that, you know, they want to have a little bit of control over some of the foods that they are feeding their families and making available to their communities. And then that interest exploded during the pandemic and during COVID, where I think we all saw just how fragile our system was. And so it's just really has taken off tremendously from that point. Jamila, is this opportunity limited to homeowners or have you worked with renters as well? So the opportunity with homegrown right now, we're working specifically with, I guess, you know what? I I can't say that it's necessarily home owners or renters, but just single family homes, I will say that. So right now we're just working with single family homes in my sort of work with Patrick City Farms and my work with the local Atlanta community outside of homegrown. I do work with community gardens. Um, I'm partnered with community garden at the Outdoor Activity Center, which is a nature preserve here in Southwest Atlanta. I've worked with people who are, you know, friends of mine who are just renters. I've worked with people who just are starting you know, gardens and containers. So I've definitely worked with a broad spectrum of people growing in different spaces, you know, throughout my career. Hmm. I'm eager to hear how your work promoting urban farming became a TV series. Were you approached by producers or did you pitch the idea? No, I never had any visions of being on TV. It's such an interesting journey that I'm mm. right now. So I was definitely approached by um, producers and the opportunity right now with uh, Magnolia Network and Homegrown was actually the third production company that had reached out with this sort of farm idea. One of the ones was, you know, kind of like this salacious. They were looking for, I don't know, drama in farming. And I was like, yeah, I don't think that's kind of what I want to do. So I don't know what they were looking for, uh, but it, it just, they were looking for dirt and stuff. But then when the opportunity came and it was an email, I just received an email from a production company and they were based at, they're here in Atlanta, Eclipse Creative, and they were like 10 minutes from the farm, like their actual location. And so she was like, hey, if you could just come into the studio and just have a chat. And I came in and it was such a easy conversation. And I didn't realize that the conversation was actually the pitch. So she recorded the conversation and then she pitched it to Magnolia Network. And, uh, you know, the rest is history, as they say. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, it was yeah 2020 in February and it just sort of, it just rolled out really easy. But I think, you know, some of the other production companies were like in California and some other places and it just didn't really feel accessible and it just was a lot. And I was like, I don't know, but I think this one being Atlanta based and, you know, I can actually go meet the people and had a conversation with Jennifer who owns the production company in partnership with uh, Yasenko, her business partner, they were just really sweet, nice people that wanted to tell this awesome story about, you know, people growing food in the urban environment. And they just found me on on the internet. They did a Google search <laughs> and they were looking for farmers in the Atlanta area. And then they found me and reached out and she was like, you were at the top of my list. So I was really happy when you came in. Oh, that is a wonderful story. And now you are not only a public figure, but a national public figure. The reviews of your show indicate how much people love the charm and approachability you bring to demystifying the experience of growing food at home. And as a viewer, 
I agree. Jamila, was it comfortable for you to step in front of cameras and share your knowledge? Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't awkward. and It's work that I'm already doing. So I wasn't outside of my element in the subject matter. And then, you know, the camera people, they're just such nice people. Everybody's just so nice at this production company. <laughs> so it was just a very comfortable set. And I had done some camera work before, but I mean, it was like videos. I hope nobody finds that I did with friends, you know, <laughs> on YouTube, just, you know, talking about food and healthy eating and all that stuff. And that was actually some of the footage that they found. So they were like, oh, okay, she's okay being in front of a camera. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a subject matter I'm comfortable with, and really they're just sort of capturing the natural process of me kind of like working with the homeowners, talking to them, you know, figuring out what it is they want, and then also just being in the moment. So it's not like I'm doing a script and I have to embody a different character or anything like that. I just get to be myself. So Hey, I think you are being extremely modest here, Jamila. What you've been dancing around saying is the producers decided you were a natural. Yeah, everybody says I'm a natural. And I'm like, I, okay, thank you. I appreciate that. But yeah, just for me, from my perspective, I'm like, I'm being myself. So, uh, you know, yeah, thank you. That's wonderful. If you are just joining us, this is City Life on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Jamila Norman, the star of the urban farming TV series Homegrown. I read that you credit your mother with inspiring you to become a farmer. Will you share with us your family's history with farming and why you were motivated to develop your own green thumb. Yeah, and it's interesting because, yeah, my parents, both of my parents immigrated from the Caribbean. So my mom from Jamaica and my dad from Trinidad, and they been, met in New York City. And so I was born and raised in New York. I moved to Atlanta like in 1992. And so I've lived in Atlanta more than, you know, anywhere else. But just growing up, you know, my mom talked about so much of her upbringing and her childhood in Jamaica. They were, she was raised by her grandmother for about 13 years of her life um, before she moved to New York and lived, you know, with her mom. And my great-grandparents were farmers, you know, and they grew everything. My great-grandfather raised bulls. My great-grandmother grew a lot of stuff, and she also made coconut oil, which was her product that she mainly took to market, you know, with all the other vegetables and stuff. So my mom just always talking about this rich history, and then I was able to live for on and off for a total of like kind of like two years we lived in Trinidad and so my dad's native home. And so growing up in Trinidad, I mean, he's just surrounded by food and surrounded by just freshness and lushness. And so I just was always just drawn to it, loved it. And I knew just like in my heart of hearts, I would just like steward a garden of my own once I had the space, right? Which doesn't exist in New York, right? Not New York City anyways. And so you know, living in Atlanta and raising a family in Atlanta and then coming back. I went to school at UGA and then I came back to Southwest Atlanta because I just love this community, love the old homes. And there's just so much land here. I mean, there's just the opportunity to grow is, you know, it's just so much land available right in the city. And so it was like, okay, I have my house. I'm here. This is the community I'm living in. And there are, there were some people who already started gardens and I started volunteering at a community garden, which was three acres that a church had two blocks from my house. And that's kind of where I started. And then, you know, found the opportunity with the one acre at the school and me and a business partner at the time, she was from Kenya and kind of had the same sort of story of great grandparents growing back in Kenya and she's here and she was planning to start her family. And we both 
wanted to have fresh produce. And so we just kind of jumped into it together. But I think like just the, the landscape of Atlanta really provided the opportunity for me to sort of re realize this dream that I've always had of just sort of, you know, having my own garden. And then that just grew from there. And next thing I know, I was like, oh, I'm a farmer which, you know, I'm, I'm growing more for my, more than for myself and my family. I'm literally growing for the community and, you know, going to market and working with restaurants and chefs. I mean, it just like, you're like, oh, and what do we have to do to sell? Okay. We have to be a farm. Okay. Well, okay. Well, I'll go register. Oh, you know, and it just, it just sort of went on from there and I'll never look back. Wonderful. Something I love is one of the tips you share with new farmers about several different vegetables liking to grow together. They have little personalities, or maybe for people who believe plants really do have plantinalities, whatever you would call it. <laughs> but I read about the, the basil and tomatoes, how the basil protects tomatoes from the pests that otherwise infected. And another well-known example I've heard about is referred to by indigenous Americans and some Latinx cultures as the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash. Yeah. Would you tell us more about how these symbiotic plant relationships work? Yeah, so yeah, this is a practice you know, people call like companion planting, right? Where you're planting different fruits and vegetables and flowers, herbs together for a couple of different reasons. So some of the reasons would be like, you know, the best use of space. Or when you're looking at, you know, the three sisters and planting the corn, the beans and the squash, you know, corn grows tall and erect and beans are a vine. And so they need something to grow on. They need something to trellis on. So usually you'll plant the corn and get that going. Then you'll plant the beans at the base of it. And as the beans grow, they get to use the corn as a trellis. And also they're not competing for the same nutrients. Beans add nitrogen to the soil and corn uses a lot of nitrogen. So it's a really good symbiotic relationship. And then the squash is something that trails along the ground. So again, it's not fighting for the same space. It also helps to protect the soil at the base because it's covering up the soil. So it helps to retain the moisture in the soil. So it's just like um, plant relationships that people have observed over, you know, hundreds and thousands of years of humans, you know, cultivating the earth and growing food and just recognizing how these things work together. So there, you can really, you know, research and, you know, you could Google companion planting charts and then, you know, you'll find those relationships. Like you plant a lot of um, onions, garlic, so those types of alliums, you will plant those with all your brassicas, your kale, your collard, your cabbages, because those type of plants the alliums help to repel the type of bugs that like to come and eat on your leafy greens and such. And so, you know, pest control is one relationship, needing each other. So support with the trellising, with the beans and the corn, with the tomatoes and basil, apparently growing basil with tomatoes makes the tomatoes taste better. Like they're just develop a much more robust and you know, lovely flavor. And then they also are not competing, you know, tomatoes grow up and wild and the basils are short and bushy, so they can be together and they just sort of help each other. And, you know, they're not competing for the same nutrients or environmental requirements. So yeah, you know, it's just learning that over the years. And I like to share that, those tidbits. And then it just also like, if you know, you're planting a bed and you just want to tuck a few things in there, it helps to kind of bring that diversity and bring, you know, all of those other things. And people do a lot of nasturtiums throughout their garden because that just helps to repel all kinds of bugs because they have a really strong smell. But then now you also bring in flowers in, which then brings pollinators. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Jimmy, like it brings to mind recipes of, you know, these, these things fit together so beautifully in our 
dining and eating. And I mean, when you're describing the onions and garlic, and I'm thinking the way these things appeared in nature probably came first. Yes, and formed the recipes. Yeah, as I've been, you know, growing over the years and really understanding kind of like the things, you know, the seasonality of stuff, you're like, oh, this makes sense why these two things are found together. You know what I mean? Like one of my favorite soups is like potato and leek soup. Mm. And it's like potatoes and leeks are coming out of the ground at the same time. And people are like, okay, I guess we're going to put those two together. Yeah, pour in some cream and melt some butter and I'm in. God, it's an amazing combination. My kids, what I, you know what I mean? And I'm growing and I'm like literally cooking these things, right? During the season that I have it. Cause I'm like, I mean, homegrown is so much better than store-bought. I mean, just flavor-wise, like you can really taste the flavor. So when that time comes and, you know, we're eating potato leek, I mean, I will cook a big old pot and we would eat that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner because it's just so good. Yeah. So, I mean, you find a lot of farmers, especially those, you know, like whatever it is that they're growing, they also are like really like lovers of food, you know what I mean? Like I love food. I cook a lot around friends and family. Whenever we get together, I'm the one that's like really, you know, cooking for my family, for friends on vacations, whatever. Cause I just, you know, I just really love food in that way and the combination and how it brings us together and just all the seasonality. But yeah, you know, chilies, all of it. It just, it's, it's, those are the ingredients that are around at that time of the year. And so like pumpkin fever that we just came through, (laughs) you know, but yeah, people get so excited and I love that. I love, you know, going to market and people are really, you know, they're looking forward to tomato season and they're looking forward to basil and they're looking forward to pumpkins and, you know, potatoes in the springtime. And so it's just been a joy to like be on that journey and to, you know, with people at local markets and chefs and things like that. So, Jamila, your work in Atlanta is particularly aimed at helping communities of color who sometimes live in areas with scarce, healthy food options. You also uplift the Black community by showing its integral role in food production and farming in America. In what ways are Black farmers underrepresented in our culture? There's so much recognition that's deserved. Where do we stand to learn from studying their farms and food-growing traditions? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, agriculture in the U.S. is, you know, very, I mean, it's a long history. It's very broad. Obviously, it started with, you know, the native inhabitants of this land and indigenous people. And a lot of the food that we consume globally are essentially the foods that, you know, were discovered or found here in the Americas, corn and tomatoes and a lot of beans and things like that. The enslavement of Africans brought the knowledge of agriculture that they had, you know, in their communities, you know, mainly in in West Africa, and they brought that here. So, you know, the Southern diet with the sweet potatoes and the black eyed peas and collards, and those are the things that, you know, African-Americans contributed. So, you know, now you have these two really rich cultural traditions that are now informing agriculture in this country. And it's really, you know, the base of a lot of, you know, what we're eating and that knowledge base that has just really spurred a very, you know, successful and rich um, country. So being in the city gives me as a farmer visibility. You know, if I was Jamila Norman, you know, operating my farm in rural America, we probably wouldn't know about me because there are so many Black farmers, even though we have lost a lot through all kinds of horrible policies, you know, and, and experiences that they had in this country. They're still farming. I know so many Black farmers that, you know, people don't know about. We just don't think when we think of farmers, 
we don't think of black people in the sense of like they're stewing in the land growing food that we're eating um and i think the image that most people have in their minds of farmers are just you know white male right so even as a woman in farming and then black woman in farming you know it's just like whoa whoa you know it, that visibility has really i think given permission to a lot of other farmers of color to like you know really step into that light so over the years, I've met so many people who's like, oh, you know what, my family has land and this is something that I've always been interested in and just seeing you do it has really inspired me to, you know, to kind of go out there and try and do it. And we've just seen, especially urban farming in Atlanta has grown significantly. There are over 30 actual operating farms in the city of Atlanta. I would say at least half of them are black owned and black operated. When I started back in 2010, maybe there were maybe seven or 10 in city of Atlanta proper. And then when we expand to Metro Atlanta, it's just definitely exploded. So I think being visible has also given you know, the opportunity for other people to be visible. And it's also sort of made people look for others that, you know, they are not normally used to seeing and farming and look for them and seek them out and kind of like give them the spotlight. And you know, you also mentioned about Southwest Atlanta. And yeah, when I moved here to this community, I loved the community. And then I was like, these food options are horrible. So that was the impetus for me to really be like, this is, you know, this is where I need to be growing food. And this is the community that I want to serve. And yeah, and that has been, you know, historically, those food deserts are in, you know, communities of color, poor communities, working with the state, I've definitely seen a lot of poor communities all throughout the state of Georgia, and they are Hispanic, they are white, they are black, and you know, they're facing the same challenges that we are. So poverty definitely is not specific to people's race or whatever. It just exists in this country, unfortunately, way more than people know. And uh, you know, food is just a basic right. And good food is important to our health, our mind, how we grow, and just, you know, food is culture. And it's so important that people have access to good food, food that is culturally relevant to them, food that like reminds them of family and culture and good times and all that. So I just, you know, do what I can to, you know, add to that. We just spoke with Jamila Norman, urban farmer and star of the HBO Max series, Homegrown. You can find out more about this series on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. In a moment, we'll share a laugh with the local comedian Joe Kelly on our series, Speaking of Comedy. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Time now for our series, Speaking of Comedy, where local comedians share their inspiration and stories from the small stage. My name is Joe Kelly, and I'm an Atlanta-based comedian. I started getting into stand-up when I was about 13 or 14 years old. My parents actually had just gotten a divorce, 
and I was at my dad's new house, no friends, nothing to do, couldn't drive. And Comedy Central used to play Friday night stand-up every Friday. It was like a three-hour block of stand-up comedy. And laughing just kind of served as a distraction from everything that was going on in my life. And I always thought it was something I could do, and I, I always wanted to do it. I was actually living on Maui for about a year. I had sold everything I had ever owned and moved out there with my girlfriend at the time. Life was great, but there was still something I wanted to do. And I was sitting under a mango tree one day. And I decided I wanted to start doing stand-up, so I called a friend of mine who lived in Nashville and let him know about my plans. And he had a job opening at a radio station there at the time, so I moved to Nashville in November of 2012 and started doing comedy in December and haven't really stopped since then. Really, the biggest challenge of getting into comedy is just the lack of money you get when you first start out. You just got to accept being broke and the time that goes into trying to get good at stand-up and trying to make your jokes better is absolutely insane. You'll sit in a smoky bar for two or three hours on a Tuesday just to get on stage for four minutes. And then once you do kind of start getting good, no one really cares unless you kind of know somebody who's already in the industry. So just waiting around to get discovered or whatever it is has been a bit grueling to say the least. I'm like an old school romantic kind of guy. Like if I'm on a date with a lady and we come up to a puddle, I'll put my coat over it for her so she doesn't have to get her shoes wet. I write love letters, that's something else I do. Put the pen to paper, cursive, I use that too. You know what I mean? Real old school kind of romantic guy. Like if I can't be with you, I'll kill myself. I don't know if I have a lot of jokes that are inspired by stories or more just like overhearing people in conversation or conversations I had where you just kind of pick stuff up and you go, huh, that might be funny. Also, I just don't remember a lot anyway. I have a terrible short-term memory, so I just, uh, I don't really remember where most of my jokes come from. They come from some greater force in the universe and I'm merely a beacon for the funny. Being an Atlanta-based comedian is great. There's plenty of opportunities to get on stage. And really, the comedy scene in Atlanta is just so good and so strong. There's a lot of good comics around. And really, compared to most other scenes in the country, Atlanta has, like, no ego. They're very open and accepting of people from all walks of life and willing to give opportunities to anybody who's out there and grinding and trying to get better at stand-up. My favorite venue in Atlanta is the Laughing Skull Lounge. It's like 80 seats, it's small, it's intimate, it's just perfect for comedy. And it's in Midtown, so people are a little wild down there. It's a lot of fun. And not that it's a particular venue, but anytime Joe Pettis is putting on a show, you know it's going to be good, regardless of the venue that it's at. That guy's one of the best producers in town, and anytime he asks you to do a show, you should definitely jump on the opportunity because you know it's going to be good. I have an album out right now called Ladies and Leftovers. It's on Spotify, Apple Music, pretty much anywhere you stream music or podcast. It's also on YouTube. You can watch it. We shot it at a theater a couple years ago in Atlanta called Mixed Deity. I'm really happy with how it came out. It's not a traditional, very tight, polished album. It's more of just a show that I wanted to put on and have taped, but I'm really happy with how it came out. And I'm traveling a lot right now with my good friend Aaron Weber. He's part of the Nate Land podcast. So we're going to be in New Jersey next year, upstate New York, North Carolina, South Carolina. We're going to be all over. But I have a website, joekellycomedy.com. Check that out and you can see all my upcoming shows. Atlantic comedian Joe Kelly. More information about Kelly's comedy as well as our ongoing Speaking of series is on the website wabe.org slash speaking of. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. The singer and songwriter Naomi Rain examines her faith, identity, motherhood, and mental health in a new solo album, Journey, 
the acoustic sessions released on October 5th. She's also a member of the worship music collective Maverick City Music, and between her own work and theirs, has earned several Grammys, Billboard, and Dove Music Awards, as well as the admiration of the Christian music community. She joins me now via Zoom. Naomi Rain, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. I'm happy to be here. The 22 tracks on Journey seem to describe a progression through evolving states of faith. Would you take us through the journey you go through on this recording? Oh, yes. Um, For me, it was important for the whole project to feel like a journey. So every song goes on a journey, but also um, the album does as well. It starts out with this journey interlude which is um, really, it's the first lines from all of the songs. I don't know if I sing them necessarily in in order, but I sang them in a way that I felt like told my story and kind of got people prepared. It's an overture. Um, And so I don't know if anybody that knows about like musicals knows that they, they put an overture at the beginning of the musical in order to give you a sneak peek of what you're gonna get throughout the show. I'm not afraid to fly I'm not afraid to try But sometimes I can't decide Which way to turn No, I'm not afraid to go Admit I still need to grow Sometimes I think I know everything But I don't And so I had, instead of doing it musically, I did it lyrically because I felt like my album was more about the lyrics and the words than the music. But I go through the first line of every song in that that song. And then I go into um, pending emotions and paper plates. And that is really about my discovery of the fact that I was emotionally constipated. That's what I call it. Um, And (laughs) I, I was overly regulating my emotions. I was stifling and avoiding conflict and avoiding anything that looked like it would make me emotional. And so because of that, um, I realized that I had opted for a life of convenience and not wanting to deal with people and relationships that were super important. I would rather just run out and get a new friend instead of working on an old friendship. Um, And so Paper Plate sucks about just the desire for convenience and doing things that seemingly are easy, but in the end, it's like not as valuable. We get to Hold On, which is a song about my marriage and relationship. And it's saying like, hey, like even though like there's not a lot of definites here, we don't know how how things are gonna go in life, but we know we're gonna hold on to one another. And it goes into Good Story and Good Story is about just really leaning into the fact that every couple, every relationship has a story, every every venture, right? Every joint venture has a story. And so I think what makes the best stories is that it's not just like, yay, they were happy, they got together and they they laughed in the end. Um, that's not how it goes. There's always some point of conflict or or some problem that arises that has to be solved. And good story is basically saying like, let's tell our story. And we know we overcome by the blood of the lamb, but also the word of our testimony. And so there's strength and power in telling the story and brand new is that exhale is just the deep breath at the end of the project. And it's like, oh, I'm, I actually went through the journey. I made it. I survived and I'm okay. Finally got a chance to catch my breath, think it over. Cause even if the pain don't end, I'm so much stronger. So much stronger. Yeah, I can finally see it's been your grace. How did 
you come up with car chats? These are some intimate thoughts of yours on the recording you included in real time. (laughs) So when I was listening to some songs, so after, you know, after you record songs, you have to send it to a mix engineer in order to mix it, make sure all the levels and the instruments and the vocals and everything are right. And so I was listening to the mixes and there were questions that were popping up in my mind. Like I was thinking like, I wonder what people will, would ask me about this song. And so I remember just saying, I'm going to record what I would want to say, you know, because I think there will be a lot of questions. People know me as a worship leader mostly. And they, and this type of music I think was a little different, is a little different for people and in terms of what they expected from me. And so I wanted to just kind of talk like I would talk in the car with my friends and most of my prayer time I do, I have in the car. Of course I pray at home when I'm in the bed in the morning, but also I, I go in my car to pray. (laughs) And so I spent a lot of my time in the car talking to the Lord and it was just like, Hey, how do I talk to the people that are going to support this music and maybe need this music and get them the message straight from me. And so what you hear is me just literally pressing record in my car and driving and talking. And I just try to keep it as real and authentic as I possibly could. Like not, I didn't try to plan it out, you know, at all, just kind of give the truth. I think that when you're willing to sacrifice, it's an expression of true love. And um, I think I've struggled with sacrificing work really for anyone or anything, even myself. And I think that when your work is ministry, when it feels so deeply rooted and connected to to God, it's hard. Um, but I'm learning how to love God and love people. You're a member of the Worship Music Collective Maverick City Music, which originated in Atlanta. The group has had major acclaim and awards. How did you join Maverick City Music? Well, I'm one of the founding members, so we weren't joining anything. There was nothing to join um, (laughs) because we just were getting together and writing songs and and going together to sing. And so I was asked to sing a song that was written, I was asked to write at, in a weekend in Reading. And this was before it was anything, but Chandler Moore was there, Dante Bo was there, Alton Eugene was there, and the founders, Jonathan J, we call him JJ, um, and Tony Brown. And so we were there and they were just like, hey, you guys wanna sing? Let's Let's get some of these songs that we've written and record them in this like in a worship setting so what happens when you write songs you demo them for artists to perform and see if they want to sing the song right and so normally that would happen in a studio um, because most songs are recorded in the studio but for us for our genre worship genre we generally record live and in rooms of people that are worshiping and so it was it made sense for us to say hey let's get people out let's worship together and see how these songs really show up in a room of people that are worshiping do they work in a room and so tony got cameras and jj got us the ability to record in the space and they got some people um from bethel and we just sang and this is like it was the first it became the first album but we weren't a thing yet so when we recorded it um it was just gonna go out to songwriters to see if they wanted to do it but tony called me and said hey i think that this is something more i think what we did that night was special and i think you you guys are the artists and so we were like what are you crazy <laughs> like no like just uh, shop the songs like we said we were gonna do like we're just songwriters you know I mean we are artists but I think we were just focused on writing at that time and then I got a text message but I, I told him I was like okay Tony like whatever you think I got a text message that said Maverick question mark and I was like what and he's like Maverick the name Maverick City Music and I was like I hate that I don't like it um <laughs> but I'm glad that they didn't listen to me because I think it is so um so appropriate I looked up the word and I read because it was like rule breaker and like unprecedented and like coming against uh cultural norms and I was like no I don't know if we want to do that but 
I realized that we had to do that. And that's what um, we were called to do is to break up some things that existed in the Christian music industry um, and in the church that didn't belong. What what are some of those things? You, you talked about genre. I was wondering if you consider your work contributing to a shift in the direction of worship music. I do. I think that the things that we're shifting, and a lot of this has to do with the effects of our nation, like the racial tension and racial issues in our nation. I think that some people don't realize that when you're called to the work of the Lord, it's very spiritual, but it's also very social, right? Because we're bringing a gospel or a news, a message to people. God loved the world, right? That he sent his son. He, he did it because he loves the world. And so there's a very social and compassionate and loving aspect to preaching the gospel. It's not just spiritual. And so for us doing these songs and making this music, we understand that there's going to be industry, right? But industry is about streamlining process and also making money. And our country has been built on making money as a capitalistic country. And we we want to make money, but also we want to do it, I guess, at any cost. And racism is a part of is a part of this our capitalistic culture. And so because of that, there are spiritual and social norms that have just, and even though things are changing, but they've just been prevalent and they 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 leach into every industry in our nation. And we have to fight hard to continue to eradicate it and remove it. And so I would never say like that we are right now where we were in the 60s or where we were in the 80s even. Like, no, we've made so much progress. So much has changed, but it's still more needs to be done. When our founder, Tony, he always tells us that when he was writing, he wrote the song, Good, Good Father. He's a songwriter in the industry and he was getting a lot of opportunities to write with people. And he looked at the writers in our genre and out of 10 the top 10 writers in our genre maybe two of them were female and none of them were black none of them were hispanic none of them were asian it was really white men and that was that was the face of the people that were writing the music for the whole body of christ that looks much different than just white men and so I will tell you this, I love my brothers, my white brothers. Um, I love white men and I don't think we need to get rid of them. I think it just has to look like more than them. And so what our what our goal was to do was like, hey, how do we get other people that don't look like, like us, begin to have conversations, sit down, talk, understand culture and write music that applies to the whole church, not just from one perspective, but takes in all the perspectives and gives voice to these other people, these other languages, these other cultures, these other, and how do we give God glory in that? Because we believe that that's the heart of God. And so um, in doing that, I think it has shifted and shaken a lot. And I think if I'm honest, I think it's offended some people because I think, I think some people think that we don't want them to to speak or have a voice. It's not that. I think we just have to give an opportunity for other voices. And it's not just race, it's gender as well. It's giving opportunity for female voices and different perspectives. And you know, I always say this to my to my um brothers, Chandler and Dante I used to say this all the time. I'm like, y'all know that black men could vote before wh- white women could vote, right? In this country. Like you think that it's just about race. It's not just about race. It's about gender as well. And women have have a voice and they need a voice in this space. And so it's important that we understand that what we've been called to is bigger than just singing spiritual songs, but it's how it affects and impacts culture and society for the future. Because we got children that are coming up that have to live in a better world than the one we live in. I think we failed if we don't do that. We've been speaking with Naomi Rain. Her new album, Journey Acoustic Sessions is out now, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights.
The Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater is returning to Atlanta in February ahead of the ensemble's highly anticipated performances at the Fox Theater next month. Ailey Artistic Director Robert Battle will take part in a distinguished panel discussion this Thursday at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. The center's CEO and president, Jill Savitt, spoke more about the partnership. Every year when Alvin Ailey comes, we host the theater troupe at the center, often for master classes, for performances, for young people, but also for discussions. And this year, we're going to have a panel discussion titled, The Time Is Now, Truth, Transformation, and Triumphs. The theme commemorates the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, as well as a lead-up to the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday observance. At the panel, there'll be a scholar, the artistic director of the theater, Robert Battle, and a range of others who will be talking about what it means to look at the past honestly, what that can do to wake us up to how some of the issues of the past linger in our lives today, and what we can do going forward to map out a future where everyone's rights are respected. The panel will also address significant changes individuals can make in the world by using their own power. The event takes place on January 12th, Thursday, at 6.30 p.m., and it's open to the public. More information is on the center's website, civilandhumanrights.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Georgia author Mark Warren joins us to discuss Song of the Horseman, his novel about love, loss, and honoring one's heritage. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with Jamila Norman, star of the HBO Max series Homegrown, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.